and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 5, Episode 7, How to Prevent Fish-on-Fish Crime. So, we're in 750 AD now. Around the world, great venerable dynasties are being overcome by internal revolt. Over to the west of India, there's the Umayyad Muslim Caliphate. And this very year, 750, their armies are crushed in battle by rebels, and the last of the caliphs is killed. And to the east of India, in China, rebellion is stirring there too. The the Tang emperors of China will soon suffer a revolt that they'll never quite recover from. And in fact, the two world powers to the east and to the west will come directly into conflict. The new caliphate joining forces with Tibet, Arab, Persian, Tibetan soldiers marching against a Chinese army in a battle that take place in 751 AD, far to the north of India. But forget all of that, because we're in India, more specifically in East India, modern-day Bengal, Bangladesh and West Bengal. Here, the mood's rather different. There are no great dynasties which are suffering rebellions for the simple reason that there are no great dynasties at all. Come to think of it, there aren't even small dynasties. Heck, even a single king would be nice, or a republic, or any kind of government, really. The last couple of hundred years or so of history in North India have been a sort of imperial fireworks show. An empire would appear in a flash, out of nowhere it seems, but then it would quickly fall and fade out of sight before another one shot up. Very few of those empires outlasted their founder's death. The empire of Shashanka didn't. Neither did that of Harsha, or Yashovarman, or Lalitaditya, and so on. Maybe Lalitaditya's did for a while, but as a much, much smaller thing. But down here in Bengal, you didn't even have a succession of flashy emperors. Don't get me wrong, the emperors invaded Bengal, but they didn't really do much there. They came and they conquered whatever king they could find, they received what tribute they could get, and then they moved on. Behind them, they left Bengal pretty much as they found it. So, for decades now, Bengal's been in a real state of almost anarchy. It's said that kings might last just one day. A republic might be set up and might be gone the next week. It was what Indians of the time called the law of the fishes. I love that analogy. We're in a world down there, beneath the area where humans can interfere, where there's no protector, where might equals right, nature wet in fin and more. That's what Bengal had become. But if you look deep enough, here, amongst all of this chaos, you can find the first shoots of a great empire, one that will rule for 450 years. It's a long time. That's longer than France has existed. 
or Spain or Germany or the UK or in fact any other European country than the Vatican. This will be one of the two great empires we're going to be spending pretty much the rest of this season with. And today we're going to meet the founder of that empire, the one that the whole dynasty was named after. He's called Gopala and the dynasty is the Palas. I love the Pala Empire. Don't know why. Maybe it's partly because this is the first time that you really get a feel that a distinctively Bengali culture is emerging. I mean, it's happening very slowly and gradually, of course. But before the period of the Palas, it's hard to spot something distinctly Bengali. But during this period, you get the first traces. For example, it seems that early versions of Bengali language started to appear about now, morphing from the, the Prakrit, the Magdi Prakrit, and the Sanskrit that was spoken in these areas before that. Actually, they formed what Sanskrit snobs would call corrupt languages. But those corruptions are often quite likable. For example, they're getting some of the features that Bengali is known for, like the lack of gender a relief to language learners everywhere. The Palas are also, in some way, a charmingly humble dynasty. Well, as humble as you can get whilst going around trying to conquer the world and building huge cities and praising yourself for it. But there's some charm there. This week, we're going to start with the legend of how the founder, Gopala, became king. I'm going to find a surprising amount of truth in it. And then we'll tell the rest of Kapala's story as he beats out the boundaries of his empire. Ready? Let's go. At the northern edge of Bengal, the forests start high on the slopes of the Himalayas a flood of deep green running down the slopes and then spilling out across the valley floor. And there, at the edge of the forest, lived a woman who loved trees. To be more precise, the trees loved her. There was some sort of affair, and she was soon pregnant with the child of a tree god. She gave birth to a son, part human, part forest. The young lad grew up there on the fringes of the forest, and he started to find out what he was about. By and by, he started going to the nearby shrine. The shrine was to a goddess named Chunda, a bit of a mysterious figure, really, little known in India at the time, but the young lad became a devotee of her. And soon he picked up her symbol, a club, simple wooden club, and he would carry it everywhere he went, hidden in his clothes or, or just there tucked into his belt cloth. As the young man grew, though, he found out, or many young men find out, he found out that the place that he grew up was small. He wanted more than this village, this shrine, this endless forest. He wanted adventure. So he left, heading south and east. And for two solid weeks, he walked down. 
Then around him, he started to notice that the land was in a terrible state. Down here on the plains, things were looking very neglected. The people around were looking timid and cowed, weak. They refused to meet his eyes. He travelled on, his eyes and ears open. And that, as usual, paid off, because he heard in the distance a wailing. It's coming from that farm over there. The sound of sorrow. The young man was a bold chap, and he went right up to the farm. He pushed at the door, and he went in. And inside he found some people, a family. But they were so preoccupied that they scarcely noticed this chap barging into their home. They were forming a, a crowd, a ring of grief. And at the centre of the ring was a man. And the man had a look of utter defeat in his eyes. His shoulders were sunk. The young lad from the forest asked what had happened. Someone in the family broke from the circle and came up to him and, and muttered, He's just been elected king. Congratulations, said the young man. He got nothing but a dark look in response. Listen, don't you know what that means? He's going to die. Here, you explain it to him. So they sat the young man down and they explained it to him. They explained how the king in the neighbouring land had, had married a Naga princess. And the Naga, now a queen, not a princess, had developed a taste for humans. Not in a nice way. In this land, every day, they elected a new king. Then, at night, the queen from the neighbouring land would pop over the border, find the new king, and kill him and eat him. This had been going on for years. I mean, how could you not know? So, don't congratulate him. Keep your congratulations to yourself. Just leave us alone. Night is coming. We want to spend our time with our, our family member. The young lad turned. He went to the door. He opened it. But then a, a thought struck him. He said, hang on. Why don't you let me take his place? I'll be king, then he won't have to die. And then he added, but only if you pay me. After all, how many days do you get the chance to be king, he thought to himself, and get paid for it? This is the adventure I was looking for. Well, okay, hereabouts, you got that chance at least once a day, but you know what I mean. Before he could take back his offer, the family had agreed, and the young lad from the forest edge was crowned king. He waited for nightfall in the palace, nervously, entirely alone, running his fingers down that talisman, that mark of his goddess, the wooden club. At midnight, the Naga queen came. But the lad from the forest had no fear. As the Naga rushed up to kill him to eat him, he calmly reached into his belt, pulled out that wooden club, and bashed the monster over the head. The monster fell to the ground, dead. 
a good night's work done, the young lad fell to a peaceful sleep. When morning came, he rose, he stretched and prepared for the day. He went out of the door and as he did so, he almost bashed into someone walking in. Both of them jumped, the incomer more than the outgoer. This man had been coming in, as he did every morning, to collect the body of last night's king. And he was astonished. He went off yelling and soon the whole land knew that the king had survived the night. Voting was set for that day's king. And sure enough, the lad from the forest's edge was voted king again. So he survived one night, the voters thought. Let's see if he can do it again. And of course, he survived the night again because the Naga Queen was dead. The next day, he was voted in again. If this stranger's willing to risk it, and if he keeps coming out the other side, why not let him? It means fewer of us die. After a few days of this, the king started to get bored with just being king and actually started to do some kingly duties. You know, looking after the land, planning irrigation, making judgments in criminal cases, all of that kingly stuff. After all, he was being elected king every day. He might as well act like it. For six days, this went on. The people electing him king every day and him surviving every night. And as the days passed, the people became increasingly less surprised that he came out of the hut in the morning. And increasingly more impressed with his kingly work in the day. He was not only surviving the kingship, he was thriving in it. On the seventh day, the people elected to make the stranger king, not just for one day, but for good. And they gave the lad a name too. They called him Gopala, protector of the cows. That story is from a document that was written down almost 800 years after the events, and quite a long way away from the events too, in Tibet. It was written by a monk called Taranata. But despite being written a long time after, and in a land far, far away, there's actually quite a lot to the story. Taranata, this, this monk who wrote it, was taught by an Indian, which might have been why his book, which was called The History of Buddhism in India, has some truth to it. It's not all true, of course. The story is a sort of kidgery of truth and exaggeration. So, like a, a picky child, let's pick out the juicy bits of truth from the horrible, eggy bits of exaggeration. We're going to follow the story from the start to the end, finding the bits that check out with other sources or, or just seem likely to be true. In the story, Gopala is an outsider, a mysterious figure from the north, and actually that checks out. Gopala probably was an outsider to the land that he was first proclaimed king. He may even have come from North Bengal, just like in the story. A later inscription names it as the homeland of the Palas. Although, whether he actually grew up on the edge of the Himalayan forests, I've got no clue. And Kopala did have a 
mysterious background, or maybe just a slightly sordid one. The story makes his mother pregnant by a tree spirit, and that's a classic move to cover up an illegitimate child. In fact, the same story is told about the next generation in this dynasty. There, the god of the oceans is said to have disguised himself as the king, and he had a child with the queen. Now, a charming story to cover up an otherwise inexplicable pregnancy. We don't actually know whether Gopala was illegitimate himself or not. There's no corroborating evidence for that, but there is plenty of evidence that he and his dynasty were seen as illegitimate in the broader sense of the word. They were disparaged in the way that ancient Indian kings were usually disparaged. They were insulted on the grounds of their caste, varna. According to one source, Gopala was a shudra. The lowest of the varnas. That was not supposed to be a good thing. According to other sources, the palas were the lowest of the shatriya varna. The palas themselves don't exactly contradict this. They're oddly quiet about where they come from. Many a great Indian dynasty traces themselves back to a, a hero. From Harsha, or at least from his bard, we hear boasts that he was descended from a hero called Pushyabhuti. And in fact, so central is this idea to Harsha's dynasty that nowadays we describe his whole dynasty using the name of this legendary founder. Although, actually, there's not a shred of evidence that this hero was more than a figment of the bard's imagination. And from other kings, we hear boasts that they are descended from Yadav or from Krishna or from Rama, and so on and so on. And this habit of tracing yourself back to a legendary founder is even more common elsewhere in the world. Take, for example, the northern Mediterranean. The Athenians claim that they were founded by Theseus, as in ship of Theseus, you know, the guy who killed the Minotaur, all of that stuff. The Romans claimed to be descended from the Trojans, Trojan horse, Helen of Troy, all that stuff. This tracing yourself back to a legend is understandable, perhaps. Adds a touch of grandeur if you're a new dynasty on the block. And after all, if you say you're descended from Hercules or Krishna, who can prove you wrong? But from Gopala and his descendants. There's not a trace of this. None of Gopala's inscriptions even mention his ancestry, which, admittedly, is not surprising because we don't actually have any of his inscriptions. But we don't hear it from any of his descendants either. We too know just a little bit about where Gopala came from. His father is described as a warrior, literally a killer of enemies. Presumably, then he's not a great conqueror, not even a general. That's the sort of thing that tends to get mentioned. He seems to have just been a humble warrior. And Gopala's grandfather, his father's father, gets simply the remark that he was well educated. The original Sanskrit's a bit grander, but that's the point that comes across. He might have been a devotee of Vishnu, or、well, that might just have been his name. But again. 
This is pretty humble stuff. So, why were the Palas so modest about their origins? Maybe because the origins themselves were modest, or maybe because the origins were sordid and they didn't want to talk about it. Maybe it was genuine modesty. Here, a devoutly Buddhist king, Gopala, uh, and his descendants not making any great claims to grandeur as a way of sort of renouncing the world. It's hard to say. Other parts of the story have grains of truth in them too. In the story, he worships a goddess. The goddess is perhaps not very well known today, and in fact, in Gopala's own time, wasn't well known either. Her name is Chanda. Not to be confused with Chanda the smith who gave the Buddha his last meal and thereby killed him. This Chanda is a goddess. Her face red like the autumn moon. Holding in her many hands a, a begging bowl, a rosary, and lots of weapons. Bow and arrow, club, knife. She's sometimes said to be the mother of Buddha. Although that's usually attributed to a more well-known goddess, Tara, who is not only called the mother of Gautama Buddha, the one everyone's familiar with, but the mother of all Buddhas. For those up on their Brahminical orthodoxy goddesses, Chanda might be related to Chandi, and thereby to Kali. She certainly looks fierce enough in some of the depictions that we have left. And Gopala might well have popularised the worship of this previously obscure goddess. She really was obscure before his time. I don't think we've got a single record of her in any text, but after his rule, she becomes quite a, a feature of religious life for a while, widely worshipped by Buddhists in East India and spreading from there to Indonesia, Java. Another kernel of truth in the story. And what about the end of the story when he gets elected by the people? Well, that gets a bit tricky. Election by the people wasn't tremendously unusual in much of India, or at least election by the rich male people wasn't. Plenty of republics had been running a version of that system since before history had began, and they carried on through the ancient period well into the medieval period so that about this time, there were still some of these republics around. Now this whole republic election thing doesn't seem to have happened that much in Bengal, so maybe that's why it was given a special mention in the story, just because election by the people wasn't the norm down there. But to find out exactly what's meant by election from the people, we have to do a bit of a dive into the original sources. They say that Gopala was made king by the Prakriti. Prakriti is a Sanskrit word, and it's got the trickiness that Sanskrit words sometimes have. It could mean an awful lot of things. It could mean something like nature, as in, she's got a fiery nature. It could mean common, which is probably where the language Prakrit gets his name. The language of the common people as opposed to Sanskrit, the language of the elite. It can also mean, Prakrit can also mean something a bit like citizen. But if this election was anything like elections elsewhere in India, probably it wasn't everyone voting. It was more likely 
A bunch of local bigwigs, local warlords who had carved out a space for themselves. The bigger fish who were feeding on the smaller ones. So this election by the people wasn't a social contract along the lines imagined by thinkers in the West, Hobbes and all that. It wasn't that everyone realised that coming together and giving up their freedom to a king would be better than constant war. More likely, it was a few warlords getting behind a single person and making him king. But still, the new king seemed to have the support of quite a few people. So there you have it. A story written down 800 years later, full of fanciful legends, nugger queens and blessings of a goddess with a club, but there's more truth to the tale than I'd have guessed. Gopala, the outsider, was made king by a people desperate for stability, desperate for anyone who could stick to being king for even a short while. And he was going to exceed even the fondest hopes for stability, carving out an empire that would last the time of their grandchildren's 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 grandchildren. It's 18 generations for those keeping count. No wonder the people were celebrating their new king. The new king Gopala got straight down to work. Kinging took more than just sitting around in a hut all night not getting murdered, and pretty soon Kapala was out and about not getting murdered. And that was a pretty impressive achievement, because before long Gopalo had been attacked by rebels from within Bengal, people who recognised no authority, as the text puts it. Most probably these were local warlords, a bit drunk perhaps from living under no one's power but their own. Warlords who hadn't been in on the deal that brought Gopala to power. Gopala fought them, and he crushed them. He extended his authority up to the sea coast, according to an inscription. Another inscription says how he conquered South Bengal, which had been considered a different land. Gopala's not really somebody you meet... I mean, we don't get a sense of his personality. There are people who do seem to get that sort of intimacy from in history. Sometimes you read enough about a historical figure to feel like you've gone to dinner with them a few times. I'm told that if you spend a lifetime focused on just one historical character, you can come to feel that you know them better than they knew themselves. All the personality quirks, the habits of expression, the way of thinking... But with Gopala, there's simply not enough about him. No personality shines through like that. All we have are the actions of a man. Less of a dinner guest, more of a silhouette of someone in the distance. But even that silhouette reveals something about him. Gopala was probably already a little bit famous when he became king. I mean, he'd almost have to be. An outsider with perhaps some military achievements to his name. Someone the local warlords could all agree would make a neutral, powerful king. 
So Gopala was probably already a decent age when he took the throne, or when he built it, which presumably you have to do if you're the first chap there. But whatever his age, he had energy. Because no sooner had he secured Bengal, had he built a whole new kingdom, than he turned upstream, away from the coast, up the Ganga, into the ancient lands of Unga, and after that, Magda, the seat of ancient emperors. This is the land that's now called Bihar, after its many Viharas, Buddhist monuments. And it may have seemed the obvious next step for a devout Buddhist set on becoming an emperor. These were the Buddhist heartlands, the same roads that Buddha trod. And they were also the centre of ancient empire, the same chairs that Ashoka the Great had sat in. What's more, in all of the chaos, this land wasn't really ruled by any powerful kingdom. It was waiting there for anyone with a good army and a strong will to take hold of. Actually, we don't know exactly how far Gopala got. The historical record is a little bit unclear about what he achieved and what his son achieved. Which is actually charming in itself, I think. It might be that Gopala took his army all the way to Pataliputra, or that might have been left to his son. No record has come down to us. But Gopala, or his son, founded a monastery there in Magda within reach of the great university monastery of Nalanda, only a couple of hours' walk away from this world-famous institution, and quite possibly part of the same system of monasteries, sort of addition rather than an entirely new thing. That's a bold location to build a new monastery. And it was a striking sight. If you're in the modern town of Bihar Sharif, in the centre, and you, you head out west you'll soon find yourself climbing up a bit as you head away from town. And you can keep on going until suddenly you find yourself maybe up to a hundred foot high, a cliff falling down beneath you. And beyond that, nothing but fields and small gullies. It was on top of this cliff that Gopala, or his son, built the great monastery of Odantapuri. The monastery was designed, it said, to resemble the universe. The story goes that there was an old ascetic, and he had a servant who was a Buddhist, and the old ascetic was the type who's into a bit of necromancy, or the ancient Indian version of it. He resurrected a man, made him into a zombie, and this zombie thing was darn near invincible, tough as nails. And the hardest part of him was his tongue, his steely zombie tongue. The old ascetic cut the tongue out and made it into a sword, and he handed it to his Buddhist attendant. Well, it turned out that the sword gave the wielder the power of flight, because the attendant flew up off the ground and around the world, up to Mount Meru at the centre of the world, and zooming over the continents that ringed around it, finally landing back at his master's side. The ascetic said, yeah, that, that sword makes you fly. I hope you enjoyed the trip. Uh, it's also got other powers. If you have a lump of gold and you cut off a slice of the lump with this sword, it will grow back to its original size overnight. So it will give you a limitless supply of gold. 
Here, take the sword. I've got no use for it. You do what you want to do. The attendant took the sword, found a lump of gold, and started cutting. And with the endless money that he gave him, he built a monastery, designing it based on what he'd seen flying around the world. Mount Mur at the centre, the shrine, the continents, the buildings ringed around it. It's a strange tale to my ear, and unlike the tale we started with, it's probably mostly wrong. The monastery might have been in some sense built by monks, but really it was built by a Pala emperor. The story about the design might be right, it might be designed to resemble the Buddhist universe. The great monastery itself is now gone, we, we, we can't check it, I've not been able to find any records of detailed excavations. Regardless, the monastery and the monastery's design were extremely influential. And that's a bit of a surprise, I think, because just down the road is perhaps the most famous monastery in all of the world, Nalanda. You would have thought that this new monastery would just get overshadowed, just be a sort of footnote to the great monastery there. It wasn't quite that way, though. Partly because Nalanda was a bit past its prime, but also because Nalanda did a different sort of Buddhism. It did, kind of, straight down the road Mahayana Buddhism for the most part. Maybe, though, it wasn't so much into the Vajrayana, the, the sort of tantric end, the mystical branch of Buddhism that was becoming popular. This new monastery could be built right next to the world-famous Nalanda because it wasn't really a rival. It was offering a different sort of education, a different sort of religious practice, one that was steeped in this tantric approach. And it was that different approach, that tantric approach, that enabled this new monastery to take off. Tibet had only relatively recently got into Buddhism. And now that they got into it, they were getting into it in a big way up there. Everyone from the king to the lowest farmer were all buying into Buddhism. And many came from Tibet to this new monastery, learning this tantric, mystical, esoteric approach to Buddhism, swelling the number of monks there to a hundred, or I've even heard five hundred. And that monastery, founded by the early Palas, became the pattern that later Tibetan monasteries followed. By the end of his life, Kapala had taken the chaos of Bengal and banged it into order. He'd forged an empire stretching across eastern India. His son would pick up that kernel of an empire and he would fail in almost every way you'd expect an emperor to succeed. But even through those failures, in fact, partly because of those failures, his son would go on to do even greater things than Gopala had. That's a story for another episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. We're going to read from a text called the Charyapada. It's from the Buddhist tantric tradition, the esoteric approach to Buddhism we were mentioning earlier. This was the sort practiced at the new monasteries that the parlor emperors would be setting up over the next few episodes. 
And in the book, there are songs to be sung at rituals. And really, they are a little bit esoteric. Maybe with a really excellent knowledge of Tantric Buddhism, you could decode every part of them, but my knowledge isn't what it should be, and sometimes I just lose the thread of what's going on, left with nothing more than a general sense of reaching out for some idea. The text isn't in Sanskrit. It's in Abhata. That's the language that's starting to separate out really from Prakrit, which would eventually branch into Bengali and another branch into Assamese and, and the related languages. And it would be lovely to sing in the original Abhata, but I can't read any of it, I'm afraid, and you really don't want to hear me sing. So I'm just going to read it in English. And it goes like this. The body is like the finest tree with five branches. Darkness enters the restless mind. Strengthen the quantity of great bliss, says Louis. Learn from asking the guru. Why does one meditate? Surely one dies of happiness or unhappiness. Set aside binding and fastening in false hope. Embrace the wings of the void. Louis says, I have seen this in meditation. Inhalation and exhalation are seated on two stools. There is a woman winemaker who enters two rooms. She ferments wine with fine barks. Hold me still, Shahaja, then ferment the wine, so that your shoulders are strongly held and your body free from age and death. When the sign is seen on the tenth door, the customer who walks in cannot get out. A small pot, small is its nozzle, Pour very carefully. Hold steady, says Virupa. Every bit as esoteric as advertised. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Many apologies for the delay. Trying to get my act into gear with that. Hopefully shouldn't happen again. If you have been enjoying the podcast please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website, which is being updated. There's a link to that in the description of this podcast. Until next time, have a great week and take care.